You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. On today's episode of My Life in Four Trades, I'm joined by legendary trader Peter Brandt. Peter is the CEO of Factor LLC and has over 45 years of experience in finance. He's the author of multiple best-selling books, and our own Rao Pal has even referred to him as one of the very best and most experienced classical chartists in the world. It's my pleasure to welcome Peter Brandt. Peter, welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Well, Meg, it's always a pleasure being with you. It's always a pleasure doing things with Real Vision. And we've done a couple of things in the past, you and I, and I've always always enjoyed it. And I am guessing that this time will be no different. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into your picks, which are really interesting, and I'm excited about this conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you? Yeah, I was a troublemaker. Uh, I mean, I, I was kind of wayward. It, it's, you know, I, I grew up in a family that didn't have much money. We were on food stamps, and from about age 12 on, I pretty much was on my own in terms of finances. And so I was pretty industrious as a kid. I'd go around, and this goes way back, uh, I'd go door to door and collect uh, uh, clothes hangers because I could sell them to the dry cleaners. Uh, or newspapers, because I could do a newspaper drive. And I had a paper route with a couple hundred papers, and I'd deliver every morning at 5 o'clock. This is like a 12, 13-year-old kid. And so, you know, I've always pretty much dug in and worked and uh, grew up in Minneapolis, ended up going to the University of Minnesota. I was a Division I hockey player. So I was into athletics, but I was also into getting into trouble and Graduated from college, got married young, had kids young. My wife was barely out of her teens when she popped the first one. And, uh, you know, and then we moved to Chicago. I I had majored in communications, uh, journalism, got a job with, at the time, like the fifth largest advertising agency in the world. It was in Chicago. So we moved from Minneapolis, young family, to Chicago. I got involved with this advertising agency and met a guy. We lived in Evanston, Illinois. Met a guy who was a soybean trader at the Board of Trade. Got to know him pretty well. And John one day said, you know, come on down, have lunch at the Board of Trade, see what I do. And went down and had lunch on the fifth floor of the Board of Trade in the members' dining room overlooking the pits. And I'm just going, this is crazy. This is nuts. I'm guys pushing and shoving. And it was compelling, compelling. And so more and more, I talked to him about what he did. And well, let me let me jump in there and stop you, because I love that it was the, the frenetic activity that appealed to you. But I think it sort of gets us into the first trade, right? And your choice of four trades is really interesting because the ones that stand out for you are, I think, related more to the milestones in your career than specific bets. And the first one is learning the commodity markets, and it sounds like soybeans was the introduction. Well, it, it ended up being corn because I was in the corn pit 
but I knew nothing about this. I mean, I'm a young guy. I have two kids at this point. I'm in my mid-20s, and I quit my job in advertising not knowing what I'm going to do other than this commodity business is appealing. And, and I think that goes back to even when I was 12, 13 years old, always figuring out a way to make money, right? And I figured, okay, I work hard. I'm smart enough. I will get at the board of trade, and I'll figure out something. I'll find some angle that will help me. And that's what I did is there was a grain company at the time, second largest grain company in the world, Continental Grain. They took me on. I ran orders. I hustled. But I even knew then I wanted to be a trader. I wanted to be like those guys that were in the pit. That was their career. And so I didn't really look at it as I want to get rich. I looked at it more like what a great job. What a great career trading commodities. So I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I had to learn it literally, Maggie, from the ground up. And uh, my goal was to trade and I'd accumulate some money and, I, and Continental would let us trade our own accounts. And so we dealt with our customers, but we could train our own accounts. Their deal was you've got to have a $30,000 account if you're going to trade because we don't want you scratching pennies in your own trading. Mm. You have to have enough to really be a trader. And so I blew out, I think, three or four accounts along the way because I really didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, you know, this is 1975. And, you know, the grain markets were hopping. It was after the Russian wheat failure and it was the big boom in commodities. And, you know, I would try one way to trade and I, I'd blow my account up. And so I blew out three or four accounts, 75, 76, 77 in the 1978. And, uh, you know, I was at this point thinking, gee, am I going to end up back in the advertising business? Am I going to make it? And that's kind of where, where I was at that point in time. And, and it took me, I think, and that's, I think, a lesson for people. A lot of young guys come in and think well, they, they just caught the Bitcoin move. Now they're big traders. Mm-hmm. Now, now they can do this. Is The reality is, and I think it's something that I've checked out with a lot of career traders over the years. It takes four, three to five years to really get a sense if you want to be an independent trader of how you're going to do it. It must have been terrifying when you were blowing out those accounts. You have a young family that depends on you. What were you thinking at the time, and why did you keep going? Well, it's really what I was determined. You know, I'm not going to let this get me down. I'm going to figure it out. I'm, I'm going to find a way. And I was really fortunate because I was able to bring some huge, huge grain customers into Continental. And so I had a customer business that I was building parallel to learning to be a trader. And so luckily enough, I was generating some pretty good income relative to what I had been and what I was expecting. So I could have gone the route of a customer guy because I had developed a good customer business, which was replenishing the accounts that I was blowing Mm. up. But it was enough to pay for my rent. It was enough. And then lo and behold, another trader said, you know, Peter, let's go over the bookstore. I'm going to buy you a book that you might find helpful. And we walked over to the bookstore that was across the street from the Board of Trade. This is 19, late 1978. 
and he bought me a, a technical analysis of stock trends by McGee and Edwards, which many consider to be kind of the Bible of classical charting. This is, this is the stuff that really lays out what charting really is supposed to be. And I bought the book and it just it resonated with me. It was like, wow, this I get, this I understand, this I think I can apply. And so really I became a chartist because prior to that, I had tried all kinds of other things. And that's what turned me on to charting. And it's really what turned my own trading around. And I think that, you know, the mentors pushing me in that direction and then charting coming into the action, is all of a sudden, I had guys giving me good advice about how to keep my capital together. And then I found a way where actually I could grow my capital. And, and that was big for me. And that kind of led me into 1980, where I really still with Continental, but had some big trades on my own and got to the point where I thought, you know, I, I have to make a decision. I, I'm going to give up the customer business and start a trading firm on my own at the Board of Trade, just what I did in 1981 with Factor Trading Company. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right, which is your, your second trade is starting your own firm. And so you come into it now with confidence. When you were making mistakes, were they always related to taking too much risk? Is that the problem that you encountered in the beginning? And how were you thinking about that now that you're going out on your own? Well, I mean, that's a good point because I think initially it was ignorance. I was losing money because I was ignorant about the process of market speculation. I was naive. I viewed it as trading is all about a way to find the next trade, right? It's trade, what I refer to now as trade identification. It's identifying the trade you're going to do where I think during the early years, I found out that, that really doesn't matter much. You know, it's, it's what you do with the trades you put on matters more than the trades you put on. And so I think that was a process of understanding that, but also it was a process of understanding that my emotions are my own worst enemy. My emotions, Peter Brandt inside is attempting to sabotage Peter Brandt, the wannabe trader. How so? How are you sabotaging yourself? You doubt yourself. You take, you know, you, you don't understand risk. You're, you're overconfident. The market needs to humble you. And, and so I think that what the charting did was finally give me a way to manage risk, not just identify a trade, but also a way to manage risk. And, and I think that was key. And so, you know, lo and behold, I launched Factor Trading and I, I knew that I couldn't do it with 30,000. So my goal, even 79 and 80, is I need to put together $100,000. Need to have $100,000 to actually think that I'm going to be a trader. And you have to look, you know, 100,000 back then is whatever it is today, a million or whatever. 
is that needed to be my account size, and that's what I launched with. And, you know, I, I think for me, looking, you know, the, the wonderful thing about it being an old guy like I am is the things you didn't see as you were in the journey, you look back and say, ah, wow. You know, you, you, you start putting things in context. And I think when I first started the business, I thought, I'm smart, I work hard, that equals success. And, you know, I look back now and I think, no, yeah, they count for something. But I happened to be at the right place at the right time. There was some luck involved. What, what, what's happening in, in the 1980s? Set the scene for us. What's happening in the markets and, and what's happening in your life at that point? Well, I'm a young guy. I'm a family. I'm trying to work hard. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really learning the markets. You know, I'm working the customer side of the business. That takes a lot of effort. But, you, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build up enough money to be launched on my own. But the markets were crazy. But I launched markets at a time when we, we started in 1982, we started a huge bull market treasury bond futures. You know, in the early 80s, we saw currency markets come alive. We had a lot going on in currencies. We had a lot going on in grains. We had a lot going on in metals. And so it just happened. I look back now and say, mentors, great mentors, great markets. It was really kind of, was it me that became successful? Partially. But I think it was just a confluence of things that might not have happened if it was 10 years later or 10 years earlier. Is It just happened that I came in and started the company at a time when we had great markets. And then I think, you know, it, it was a learning curve from then because I, I had some my goal starting out, Maggie, I started $88,000 is what I started the firm with. And even then, I, re- I thought, I need to have a million dollars. To really be a trader back then, I felt you needed a million-dollar account. And so my first goal was, how do I push the 88000 to a million? And, you know, we had the markets to do that. But I look back now, and I, the risks that I took to do that in a couple-year period of time scare me to this day. I think... The risks I took were nuts. They were nuts. It was nuts spending 10% of my account on a trade. In some cases, 20% of my account on a trade, but typically 5 to 10% on my account on a trade. If the markets would have been different, I would have been carried on on the stretcher. But it just so happened at a time when I took crazy risks. And it scares me to think of those risks. Hindsight now, you have the sort of wisdom of hindsight to understand that that was crazy to do that, to take those risks. At the time, I'm sure it solidified your reputation. Were you seduced into thinking it was you, <laughs> that, it was, that it was your? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, who wouldn't, right? I mean, that's natural, you know, is, is you take your trades personal. And I, and I think that's what I try to tell young traders today is, Marxists don't know who you are. They could care less. Yeah. So why are you taking your trades personal? I mean, the markets don't care who you are. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there was some pride, right? But I'll tell you what happens. When you take risks, eventually you're going to get nipped in the butt. And so during that period, you know, from 80, 80, 81 and into the 80s, 
there were, I think, three times when my account took 35 to 40% hits. Ouch. That wakes you up. And sometimes people double down, though, and increase their risk because they're in the hole. Yeah, but they're going to get buried doing it. Uh, I mean, it's just inevitable. People that do that, they may get lucky once, and they may get lucky twice, but they're not going to get lucky three times. You know, it's eventually going to bury them. You either learn to manage risk or you're going to die trying. And I think that's one thing that over time I've redefined myself. And during that period, I think there was a transition that happened where I looked at myself less as a trader and more as a risk manager, Mm. is I thought, I'm not really a trader. Trading is not what I do. Managing risk on bets is what I need to do. I need to manage the risk. If I can manage the risk, I can continue to proceed in this life cycle that I'm in. And I, you know, even now, you know, you hear people talking about you know, whenever I see on social media somebody talking about doing their risks, their bet size based on the Kelly, the Kelly criteria, I think to myself, you might as well crawl into a coffin now because you're going to die doing it. You can't max out risk. You'll burn out if you max out risk. And I, I think that's what happened to me during during this period of time you know, from 80, 81 on through the mid-90s as I, I became more and more of a risk manager. And, you know, the other thing, a couple, you know, things that, that happened to me during that period of time uh, was markets changed a little bit. Some of the big trending markets kind of, you know, we went back into normal markets. Reagan became president. You saw some changes in uh, you know, inflation got taken care of during that period. Uh, you had some big busts in markets that didn't recover. The nature of markets changed. But mo- the most important thing that changed to me is I started trading more Forex. I, I started trading a lot more bank, market, foreign exchange. Why was that? Um, because there were trends. There were good trends. You know, I just found in the Forex markets, you you always find some excitement. And so the grain markets can die out, but the Forex markets were always moving back then. But there was a big difference. In the grain markets, you know, we'd get in and do out trades at 8 o'clock in the morning, be done at 115. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden in Forex, you're 24-5. Right? And in some yeah. cases, you could trade currencies on the weekends as well. Uh, you know, especially in Asia, you'd start trading currencies at noon on Sunday. And so, you know, you just all of a sudden, your whole, your whole environment changes. And for me, that had, that was great because I love the foreign exchange markets, but it was bad is that it burnt me out. Yeah. And so, uh, because I'm on call, yeah. you know, I would call a Forex desk. And I'd say, let me sleep, but if DMAR comes out of this band. So I'd establish a band. And this is back, we didn't have computers back then, Maggie. Is we're doing everything by phone. I mean, every order that was done was calling into a Forex desk, calling into a Which bank. Which is incredible when you think about it. It's incredible. Unbelievable. And we didn't have, 
you know, I used to keep charts by hand. I would start with graph paper and I would, because we didn't have computerized mm -hmm. charts. Computerized charts didn't really start until like 80, 81. So in the 70s, I kept charts by hand and then continued to do so. Now I'm trading markets that are open 24-7 or 24-5. I'm getting called during the middle of the night. My wife kicks me out of the bedroom saying, if you're going to get called, I'm not, I don't want to be woken up. You go sleep downstairs yeah. so I get my own bedroom. So and you, you, you become that, not that stereotype, but that image of the people we see who just are glued to the machines, afraid to turn your eye away, and it starts consuming your life, it sounds like. It does. And, and that, you know, that, you can't do that forever. The interesting thing, uh, I, and I'll pass this on because maybe some people out there will relate to it, is my family kind of always knew to some degree, did I have a good day? Did I have a bad day? But the entity in the family that the kid, the family always joked about is my dog always knew what kind of day I had. And it's not that I was ever cruel to the dog, but dogs have an amazing sense of presence, right? Anybody that has a dog knows your dog knows your emotional state. And because it was just, I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but they called my attention to it is Gracie kind of didn't want to be in the same room with me if it was a big day mm -hmm. down. And um, so 95, I gave up trading. I shut down the company. That's amazing. What, did you just one day wake up and say, I just can't do this? Or was it a thought process where you understood? Yeah, I just, I can't do it. You know, 94, 95, my performance, I, I had a hard time taking risks. It was it became dreadful putting on trades. I just didn't mm. look forward to it. It's like, oh, I've got to trade another day. And so I just, I packed it up. We lived in Northern Minnesota and I packed it up. I shut down all accounts. I closed all of my commodity accounts. I put the money into Fidelity Mutual Funds and I turned off the machine. Thinking, okay, it's going to be a couple of years. You know, I, I just, I need a break from this thing. I need a hiatus. I need a vacation. I need downtime. And, you know, I just got involved in all kinds of things. I got involved in charitable organizations. I actually became an NGO at the United Nations. <laughs> really? Doing what? <laughs> I, I, I was just involved in issues. I was trying to counter George Soros, basically. Because back then, and always Soros has always been involved in the United Nations for various causes. And I tend to think socially on the other side of the coin from Soros. But I got involved in all kinds, you know, poverty issues, AIDS issues, all kinds of things. And I had my own UN badge. I'd go to UN meetings. I've been at UN conferences all over the world. And I thought, you know what, two to three years, I need a hiatus it actually became 10 years, Maggie. That's amazing. You sound like the excitement and joy you felt about trading just had totally left and you just really needed to find inspiration again. I did. And I, I, I just remember 2005, I'm at my desk in our home. By then we had moved to the Mountain Scholar Springs. My wife was standing at my left. I was sitting down and I said, Mona, what would you think about me starting Factor back up again? And she just kind of looked and go, I kind of liked you the way you've been in recent years. 
This is actually your third trade, which is swapping this NGO life, quiet life, retired, quasi-retired hiatus to jump back in. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a big trade to make, considering what you've just described. Huge trade. Huge trade, because part of it is I really kind of gained a hunger for the markets again, and I started paying more attention to what my Fidelity Mutual funds were doing. Was it creeping back in, or how did that happen? Because you were so done, and it was 10 years. Yeah, that's a, I was so that's done. That's a long break. When did you feel that little flame coming back? I think when I became a little bit more interested in picking my own mutual funds rather than just having it all being in Magellan is I'm going to start moving some money around in the funds and maybe I want to be in this fund or that fund and started tracking the fund performances, the fidelity performances a little bit. You crack the door. You crack the door open. Yeah, I cracked the door and the monster arm <laughs> came out and grabbed me and said, you get back in here, buddy. You belong to us. <laughs> <laughs> and... I didn't even know how to open an account. So I, I ended up opening an account with Interact Brokers. But, you know, and then I ended up mainly opening an account with ADM because I knew them from the grain business and that's where I do my business now. But I didn't know this computer trading. Really? We trade on computers now? I mean, really? I don't call my orders in? And so literally the technology of trading had changed. I was not aware that the pit side of the business was dying or dead. Yeah. Did it occur to you when you realized this, were you intrigued or were you concerned and worried about whether you would be able to figure out what's going on? Well, I, I think I could do it. My concern was, has computerized trading changed the behavior of markets, right? Because I knew the markets from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I knew what those markets were. I, I understand their personality is my concern is, okay, I'm going to get back in here, is the markets change, but more importantly, have the way I traded, is that relevant anymore? You know, it's, it's the way that I used to select trades in the chart, the way that I would monitor trades, the way I'd move stops, the tactical part of trading. It, will those even work anymore? And I didn't know. You know, I did not know if that would work or not. Now, what what are you trading at this point? Like, where did you dip your foot back in? Did you go back to the old stomping grounds? Japanese yen. Yeah, currencies. I Forex. went right back to the currency markets because I knew them. And at the time, the grain markets were just as dead as a doornail. Now, they came alive in 2007, 2008. But back in 2005, they were dead Currency markets were good. Metal markets, for the most part, were dead. They didn't really come alive and start their climb yet, you know, which then brought them into 2011. So the traditional commodity markets were really kaput. Currency markets were moving. So I was drawing the currencies. I loved them. I found ways to chart. All of a sudden, I could chart on a computer. Yeah, so now it's easy and easier in some ways. Yeah, in some ways, but I found also that that's a trap for me, and I had to eventually go back to hand doing charts. But, you know, I didn't know, is it going to work? You know, is it, is it going to work again? So, I, And here's the amazing thing is I came out and reopened an account 
in the very first year that I'm back, Maggie is 100%. I do 100%. I, I double my account. And you're, I'm just thinking, golly, I've got it. The magic fingers are bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that proceeded into another 35 to 38%. I was just going to say, you, in a way, it's the mistake, the, the lesson you still didn't quite learn before, right? Yeah. Yeah. The reality's back, right? And so, you know, I really was kind of a rookie all over again. I had to start all over again. But then, you know, we had great markets in F in foreign exchange, 2005, six, great markets. We had big, you know, the interesting thing is we had this huge bull market in Chicago wheat in the last month, uh, up till Monday of this week. You know, we retested the high made in 2008. And so we had, we had a bigger bull market in wheat in 2007, 2008. Bigger bull market in beans, bigger bull market in corn in 2007-8 than we've had this year. Uh, and so we had great markets. So I came back in. Again, fortunate, right? I had great markets in the 80s when I started. I come back and we have great markets. That has nothing to do with my ability to think or work hard. And so I hate to use the term, but when I look back on my career, I see the hand of sovereign destiny mm. to some degree. Now, that sovereign destiny might make to carry me out in a basket. Who knows? <laughs> you know, that's, that chapter's yet to be written. But uh, it was great. And then we had the big bull market in, in silver, in another bull market in silver, where, you know, we went back to 50 bucks again, bull market in gold, where we, you know, where we go up to 1900. And so, you know, those were great markets. And so I'm thinking, okay, things are good, right? I mean, I'm good again. I, you know, the big drawdown 2008, like 2008, I have, I have the big drawdown. That's when, that's when the grains mm. turned, right? I had what I refer to as a popcorn trade. Not when you make popcorn, the kernel explodes and hits the top of the kettle and then drops immediately down. And so I refer to trades where I do a round trip as a popcorn <laughs> trade. So I had some of those in 2008. So I had the big drawdown and I think a big lesson of risk again. Well, 2008, a lot of people were learning lessons about risk. Did you see the financial crisis coming and did you expect those events? Oh, I did. All right. The drawdown started late 2008, really into 2009. And so my 38% my drawdown was really a, 2000, really a 2009 event. 2008 was another 100% year, primarily fueled by being short the S&Ps in the drop. Mm. And so that for me was a really clear trade. I mean, that thing just was was waving flags, and I wish all the bear markets were that easy. That was a really easy bear market to see. And so it was a great trade. What'd you get wrong in 2009? What was the drawdown? What was the misstep? Well, the drawdown, I think, was I got caught. The grain markets, I got overenthusiastic. I just got on the wrong side of a couple markets. and But then climbed back out again. And then for me, this period became really one of the most remarkable, memorable 
impactful periods of my life. I go through, starting in 2012, 2013, the worst year that I've ever had in my trading career. I've traded all these years, Maggie. I've only had maybe three or four losing years, and the average of those during that period might have been a couple percent down. It's incredible. Yeah, 3%. But I go down 14% in 2013. I have a drawdown of 20%. And I thought I had, I thought it was past drawdowns again, right? I thought I was over those. Yeah. I thought I had corrected that. I thought I had figured out, you know, it's it's easy to make money if you hang around long enough. The challenge is keeping it. I mean, keeping <laughs> it is a bitch. I hate to use the word in your broadcast. You may have to censor me. Making it easy, keeping it hard. What happened in that year? What contributed? Was it clear cut or is it a, a, a all in my head? It was. I mean, really? hey, you trade. You know, however you trade is going to have good times, going to have bad times. And so, what happened in 2013 is I started buying a lie because back then, if you remember, everybody is saying high frequency trading is changed the game. It's changing the way markets act. Mm -hmm. If you don't adjust, you're going to die. And so what began is probably just a normal drawdown. You know, and for me, even back then, you know, a, a normal drawdown at that point in my career is 10%, you know, and I'm in and out of it in three, four months, right? Uh, and all of a sudden, I enter a drawdown that probably would have been just that, 10%, 15% drawdown, four months, five months, maybe for a new high. And I bought this thing about, you know, markets change, you better change. So I started tweaking the way I changed, started adding indicators. I thought, well, maybe I better add relative strength. Maybe I better add bands. Maybe I have to develop different techniques to adjust if everybody's saying that the markets have changed. Now, I look back now, and what started as a minor drawdown, which would have ended as a minor drawdown, really became a big changing event in my life because it became a peak to valley to new peak drawdown of 23 months. You know, yeah. it, it became a 20% drawdown. So I make this change and I was in over my head. And, you know, I kept chasing after the markets from last month that did what well last month, you know, on certain indicators. I, I, you know, I wander off down, you know, off the main road, down all these rabbit trails. And so it really became to the point where I go, yeah, maybe I, you know, I've had a few good years here now again. Maybe I just need to hang it up. And and you've already now stepped out. Yeah. And so this is, if you're not having fun and you start getting miserable again, or it's becoming stressful, you know, you've had that feeling before when you lost the joy. So that's hard to take at this point. Ugh. But I think this is going to bring us to your fourth trade. I can hear it in your voice now all this time later. I, I think this brings us to your fourth trade, and that's making the decision to go on or to pack it in again, right? Like, what do you do with that agonizing year? And your trade is, your trade is to stay. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. My trade was to stay, Maggie. My trade was to try to do what I had done as a kid in my 20s. I got to figure out I'm not going to accept defeat. This is a problem. I have to find the workaround. Did you agonize over that decision, though? Did you think, I I could be sitting on a boat someplace, just taking it easy. Why am I doing this to myself? It was very agonizing. It was really bad because I had a lot of health issues at the time. Uh, You know, I, I had a bad accident in 1984. I fell off my house. I severely broke my back. And, you know, I was able to kind of get that fixed and go on with a pretty normal life. But back in the, again, 2007, 2008, 2009, my back really became aggravated again. And so now I go into 2013 and 14, and it's miserable. And I think one of those years I spent half the year at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Mm. And, you know, it was real agonizing And, you know, one thing I've tried to do as a trader is hold myself accountable to about three, four other guys that are great traders. You know, we don't talk about, you know, should I buy beans? Uh, Do we short the British pound? But we talk about, you know, how do you have a bad day and not kick your dog? How (laughs) The poor dog. (laughs) Yeah, poor dog. You know, how how do you handle... And there was a small group of guys, and I reached out to them. I said, I don't know what to do, guys. I, I'm at wit's end. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I keep trying to find a new way to trade. And we had a long conference in Scotland, in the highlands of Scotland. And I flew over to Frankfurt, then flew over to Scotland, uh, to London. Then we take a train up to the highlands, and we have four traders and we just lock ourselves, and they just, like, deconstruct me. I mean, they literally, I mean, I had all my trades. And it's not their nitpicking trades. They're nitpicking me. They're just going after me and trying to figure out, you've got some loose screws. We need to put your head back together. How was that experience? That could be fantastic. It could be extremely painful. I mean, you kind of expose yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a Ray Dalio event, right? I mean, when you think about it, I mean, can you imagine how hard it would be working for Ray Dalio? And it was almost like a Ray Dalio experience is these guys are going after every aspect of my life. You know, it wasn't Peter, uh, how do you select a soybean trade? It's Peter, what do you do in the morning? How are you thinking? What's your process? How are you thinking about risk? How are you doing your t- sizing? What are you looking at? And I think what it really forced me to do is, Peter, you need to recap. What were your basics? You need to go back to the basics. You need to go back to really where where your foundation is. We've got to be healthy. How do we remain healthy? Because if we're not healthy in our head, we're not going to be good traders. If we're not healthy in our head we will not be able to sustain the periods when our trading's not working because Mm. there will be times when your trading doesn't seem to work. And that's, that's where you tell the tale. 
you don't tell the tale during the hot streak that you get when Bitcoin runs from 8,000 to 60,000. You tell the tale if you're a Bitcoin trader when it chops from 60,000 to 30,000 and doesn't go anywhere for a year. I mean, that's where you tell the tale is during your hard times, is what happens during your hard times. And I think that was a big, that was a big event for me that these guys deconstructed me. The other big event for me that I want to touch on, Maggie, mm-hmm. that kind of changed a lot about not necessarily how I trade, but how I think of trades, is there was a firm back in the 90s that started in Chicago. It was called Chicago Research and Trading, CRT. It's now called Chicago Trading Corp. And they were the first high-frequency trading operation you know, in anything. I mean, they preceded high-frequency trading in stocks. And these guys are smart. And some of the members of the family that started that firm are good friends of mine. And I got involved with one of them in developing a software, an Excel software package by which all kinds of what-ifs could be run with your trading, where you could just sit and ask this machine. There are 750,000 cells of formula in this program. But what it allowed me to do is go back through, and I've always been kind of anal about keeping my trading metrics. I, I mean, I've got a record of, I've got a lifetime NAV curve trade by trade. I, I mean, I know what my Kelmar ratio was, you named the the three-year period. I mean, I've always been kind of anal about trading performance metrics. I mean, I know guys today, I like Chase's rate of return, which, by the way, is the second most misleading, unimportant metrics there is, the first one being Sharp Index. And so I've always had those, and I developed this software with these guys, I wouldn't have been able to develop on my own. They just were brilliant. And what it allowed me to do is get a grasp on my trading from the standpoint of a statistician, Mm. from the standpoint of a mathematics guy, understanding that the significance of each and every trade is basically meaningless, that all a trade is is a datum point in a series of data points subject to random probability. That, you know, everybody, most good traders would say I'm right half the time, maybe, you know, 40%, 50%, 55%. Well, if you're right on 50% of your trades, what makes you think that you know your next trade is going to be a winner? There's no way to know. But yet people put on trades all the time confident that their next trade is going to be a winner. My default assumption has become that my next trade is going to be a loser, and how do I prepare for it? My default Mm. assumption is my next three trades are going to be a loser because there's a high probability that it will be, and I have no control over it. And so my mindset now is not so much I want to be a bull or I want to be a bear, I want to be long, I want to be short. But I'm just putting on a data point. I'm throwing mud at the wall, and I really don't have a clue if the next trade is going to be right or not. And it was at this point, Maggie, that something that my elders, my mentors back in the early 70s came 
to fruition. And that is this idea that the job of a trader is to manage losers. Manage risk. Yeah. yeah, not only manage risk, but manage losers. My job is to manage my losers. My job is to deal with my losing trades. You know, my winning trades will take care of themselves, mm -hmm. which goes back to a foundational thing traders say, cut your losses short, let your winners run. And all of a sudden I have this, this, this history of 7,000 trades, right? And I have this database that is just mind boggling that allows me to say, well, I wonder if I can run simulation that gives me the statistics on the idea of cut your losses short, let your winners mm -hmm. run. And let's look at that. Let's really look at that, not in terms of a philosophical concept, but let's look at statistically and let's check it against actual trading records and trade management. And again, what I'm looking at here, and this is 2014, 2015, is not so much of what if I would have not selected that gold trade or what if I would have not selected the bean trade, but what if I would have selected the gold trade and covered my trade if it ever closed a single day as a loser? What happens if I close every losing trade on a Friday? What happens to my performance curve? What happens to my performance profile? And it gave me insight into trading that was beyond anything that I would have ever experienced. So I'm going, this is, this, this is happening to me when I'm literally almost in my 70s. You know, I'm a 70-year-old guy that for the first time, light bulbs are going out and I'm going, ah, wow, amazing. But I know it experientially, I know it philosophically, and now I know it statistically. And it's just been a remarkable thing for me to have the confidence that it doesn't matter if my next trades are going to be a winner. It really doesn't matter as long as I don't let the loss grow, as long as I cut my losses, and as long as I look at myself not as a trader, but as an order enterer. I'm a glorified order enterer. My job is to enter orders that make sense relative to the way that I look at markets. And if I do that and cut my losses, then I shouldn't be worried about what happens at the end of a week or a month or whatever. And so that's kind of taken me full turn, right? It's brought me back to my foundation. It's brought me back to what guys who were successful traders told me in 1975. It's brought me back to common wisdom that traders have had going back as long as trading's existed. And that's been really fun for me. Well, Peter, uh, we are all beneficiary of all your experience and the fact that you're sharing it with us. So we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I've appreciated Maggie, and I always appreciate having FaceTime with you. So it's been great for me. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. 
Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.